Welcome to the Beer Sec Ops Podcast. Yeah, I said beer. Some had to go to make room for beer, and it wasn't going to be sec, was it? And we need those ops guys, so sorry, Dev. Beer Sec Ops, who will be having conversations with cybersecurity industry influencers and frontline DevOps warriors to help provide us with a cloud-native security blanket. To those who are treading lightly into our hazy DevSecOps world of rainbow shundering unicorns. Hello once again and welcome to Beer Sec Ops. I'm your host, Steve Jaguer, and on this episode I have Dean Bryan. Dean is a developer advocate for Microsoft, which is already pretty cool, but what makes him super cool and really interesting to talk to is that he specializes in serverless security. I ran into him doing a webinar for Microsoft Reactor where he was showing how you could exploit a very simple function in Azure Functions, and I thought, I got to get this guy on my podcast. It's pretty awesome. He's done work at the London Olympics on security. He was there at the beginning, the birth of Lambda at Amazon, and he's ideally positioned to talk to me today to clarify serverless generally, to break it down into different types of serverless, and to talk about how we can secure each type. So let's get into it. Dean Bryan on serverless security. Dean Bryan, thanks for being on Beer Sec Ops. How is your day going so far? It's early. It's great, thanks. It's pretty early, but the sun is shining. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Are you? Uh, did I see on Twitter you're a countryside kind of guy? I saw a very nice photo. I think. Yeah, I uh, I live out in the Kent countryside, so we're very fortunate actually right now to have uh, abundance of space on our doorstep that we can explore. Fortunately. Yeah, that is that is particularly like I really appreciate. So I live way up north uh, on a farm, and I never appreciated it more than during lockdown. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it's it's nuts. Um, but yeah, you've been in, in spite of all the lockdown. I think you've been pretty a- active. I saw the um, MS Build. Did you host a panel recently on that? Yeah, I actually hosted the whole second day of Build. Wow. Um, during the UK. So we did about eight hours of live uh, interviews and content. So yeah, I hosted a bunch of panels. I had a co-host, Amy, so I got a bit of a break when she did some interviews. But uh, yeah, it's been pretty been a pretty busy few weeks, actually, keeping me occupied. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And I think that the one, I thought I saw one of them was, uh, was it April Edwards and Gene Kim? Is that like, did you have a Gene Kim on a panel? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I did a DevOps panel with April Edwards, Gene Kim, and Steve Thayer, who is the founder of DevOps Group. Yeah, wow. it was awesome. It was great. It was great fun. They're all awesome people. Very awesome. Uh, but I ran into you at a Microsoft Reactor. Well, you, I, it was a one way running into. Um, <laughs> but you did a serverless security uh, webinar through Microsoft Reactor, and I watched it because. It's very much a growing interest area uh, for me and just for the industry generally. And I thought you really articulated the subject in a way that I that the podcast alarm bells went off. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> I've got to find out who you are and, and follow you and, and get you certainly onto the podcast. So that's, that's kind of where this led. Um, but if you don't mind, real quick, can you give a bit of your history that sort of led up to that webinar just so people get a bit of background of who you are who don't already know you of course yeah sure i uh i'm dean Bryan. i work currently for microsoft as a a principal cloud advocate i focus on security with uh, a special focus on serverless security 
really combining combining two of my passions. Uh, but leading up to that, this current role and that point uh, has been a, a long a long few years. But I um I, I started my my career back at B, the BT British Telecom. Uh, it's where I started really doing a bunch of security and cyber security work there. Um, actually led cyber defense operations for the London 2012 Olympics, uh, which was which is another uh, conversation to be had at some point, um, which was a, a fantastic experience um, to kind of cut my teeth uh, at British Telecom before joining uh, a small cloud provider in the UK uh, uh, who were called Skyscape, they're now called UK Cloud, um, as a network and security architect there to build out their cloud platform. Uh, and then uh, I joined AWS in 2014 and spent a bunch of time there. So that's really where I found my love for serverless. I, uh, when Lambda was first launched in reInvent November 2014, I was there and I witnessed it. I was actually an early beta tester of Lambda working with the product group before it actually launched. Uh, and yeah, I fell in love with serverless from then really went on and just dedicated a lot of time to focusing on serverless. That really being my passion, uh, did a bunch of stuff around that at the time. Ended up working for Alexa for a little while, which kind of lent into the serverless side of things because obviously all of the uh, skills or apps people were building for Alexa was all being built using serverless technology as well. And then more recently, a few years ago, I joined Microsoft and um, yeah, I've been working here the same kind of vein, really uh, focusing a lot of my effort on serverless and um, and security. Yeah, trying to combine those two passions of serverless and security at the moment really is my what I'm focusing on. Awesome. So you started in you started the very genesis of Lambda, it sounds like, which is very cool. Um, something that I would like to clarify, and that is, and the reason for this is when I go out to the, uh, into the ether and look at reports about serverless, particularly to do with security, sometimes there's confusion as to what serverless actually means. I mean, to people who are involved with Lambda or Azure functions, then that's serverless. Yet I was looking at a, an OWASP report on serverless and they were very much talking about container as a service. So. ACI or, or Fargate, those kind of things. So how do you define serverless? It's interesting. I actually, I definitely think that there's been this connotation for a long while that serverless equals Azure Functions or equals AWS Lambda or uh, Google Cloud Functions or whatever whatever it might be. Um, I think serverless is way more than that. For, for me, the way that I characterize anything to be serverless is it has to meet three criteria and I need to remember the three criteria now. I know that there's three, so let me remember exactly what they are. So one is that um, there's micro billing, you pay per use. You never really pay for idle. Um, the second one is that it it scales on demand. You don't have to worry about scale. You can, you can just stay asleep at night and not have to worry about it. And then the third one is that it, um, is that there's complete abstraction of servers, right? You don't care about the servers. You don't care about any of the underlying operating system or infrastructure. You might care a little bit about what the operating system is, um, but you don't really have to manage it or worry about it. It's, it's completely abstracted to you if you wish. Um, so as long as it meets those three criteria, micro billing, uh, scaling on demand, and like infinitely scaling on demand pretty much. And um, the, the final one, which is, which has now completely escaped my mind, which I was talking about, um, which, oh, which is the abstraction of servers, then that is what I would class a service as serverless. So there's a bunch of services that fit into that category, really. Um, some of the containers as a service thing, uh, yeah, definitely fit that criteria. Some of them don't. Um, you are paying for idle. Other things support these services. So I kind of said this, um, I've said this a few times that I think that I try to differentiate the two things. So I've, I see these things as there's truly serverless services and functions is the, the, 
the poster child of that, right? Any kind of function offering um, is the poster child and it meets all three of those criteria all day long. And then you've got, um, but then you can't just build a whole application with just a function, right? It's gonna be a pretty rubbish application if all you've got is just a couple of functions. So you need to tie that together with other services. So I kind of try to differentiate between what I would consider like a serverless architecture or system which might have some services that don't meet all of those criteria, um, but it's mainly composed of platform level services where it meets probably two, if not three of those criteria. A good example here is um, you might have something like um, like Azure Storage, Blob Storage, right? You, you do only really pay for use, but then you pay for all your storage while it's sitting there, right? You, you still pay for it when it's, when it's idle and you're not using, no one's using your application, right? You still pay for the data that's stored in your database, um, but you still need to have a database. Now, um, but if but it is it would still be classed as a serverless application if you were using Cosmos DB or DynamoDB on the back end or Azure Table Storage or whatever, even though you're it doesn't quite truly meet all of those criteria in my opinion. Okay. Uh that I've never heard anybody describe the three the those three before, microbilling, scale on demand, and abstraction from service. That's that's quite good. When you start touching on and I, I think I would like to talk mostly about the poster child, as you called it, uh, functions and how we secure those today. Uh, but I'd like to also maybe dip a little bit further in before we get into that about, I guess, serverless use cases. So just if someone is, we may have listeners who are thinking about moving into serverless and the, the things that might be hurdles or maybe confusion or, or roadblocks for them is what are the best use cases? And then of course, securing those use cases. So can we define a few use cases first? Yeah, I think the most natural one these days, and actually it surprises me a little bit, is the is like web APIs, right? Having web applications that you can run on serverless. Uh, this is really, an, it's, it's an ideal use case, but the reason I, I say that's quite funny is because originally when we first, um, like back in 2014 when Lambda was first launched, it wasn't synchronous at all, it was asynchronous. Um, so you couldn't actually run web requests against it, which, is, uh, which isn't really how it was originally invented. Uh, there was lots of feature requests for that and that happened pretty quickly. Um, but even now, you still can't do a direct HTTP trigger. You need to chuck some kind of API gateway in front of it. Uh, you can do that in other providers, in, uh, but uh, that's just an architectural design there. But So the web APIs is a good use case. Uh, if you think about it, you can just have, all you need to worry about is your code. You don't even have to worry about, like if you're writing Node.js and you are building APIs, you probably need to understand Express uh, or ExpressJS or some kind of API framework and manage your routing and routing your requests uh, as they hit your server or whatever into these into these various paths on the back end. You don't really have to worry about understanding a framework like that. You can just have uh, different functions to handle all those different things and then uh, you would route to them via your API gateway and manage your routing there, for example. Um, that's quite a nice use case, especially for startups. It's really right, really, really great because you don't pay unless you get customers, right? Um, but the other use cases, I think that kind of, uh, uh, we tend to forget now, every single like 101 introduction to serverless is how to build a web API with serverless or whatever. But the the kind of asynchronous use cases, I think are really exciting, right? To being able to respond to any kind of event that happens within your cloud environment. If you think about cloud native environments where people are all in, in the cloud and they're leveraging platform level services within the cloud and they're using things like Azure storage, right? As soon as an item gets updated, uploaded to storage, do, do this thing, right? Go ahead and do this thing. 
Um, or the more interesting one sometimes is uh, action to something that's happened in a database, right? Has there been a change or an update action happen within a, a, data, a NoSQL data store, right? Do something to that. But like the most simple example I can think of is um, like you might want to then go and move the data somewhere else, perform an action somewhere else based on somebody's updated something in a database. But I think they're really interesting use cases, thinking about how you can leverage it as a kind of worker role asynchronously. Uh, the original one, we the, the demo used to always happen today was um, transforming an image, right? Turning it into a thumbnail or something smaller like that. Um, and then the other one that I think is really interesting and we don't talk enough about and we should definitely talk more about is using these kind of services as as the glue between our services, but also from like an operational perspective, using them for um, stuff that maybe the cloud provider doesn't do out of the box, but running code within functions to, to do stuff that just helps us uh, manage our cloud environment and operate that environment you know checking this doing this like a lot of the functions that i've wrote in the past are actually talking to the azure apis and orchestrating and administering azure environments right um i think that's really interesting um around using them as that kind of from an operational perspective and even from a security perspective right you can have a timer-based function that just runs every day and does a bunch of things um i was working on one the other day that um that I build an open source, a really simple open source tool called Azure IP, and you give it an IP address, and it will tell you what exactly which Azure service and region the IP address comes from. And um, I was looking at building. Uh, there's a public JSON document, but it isn't public. You have to authenticate to, to get it. So I built a an Azure function that is already authenticated. It goes and pulls that JSON and then makes it available to my my CLI tool that people can use to check IP addresses, um, which is a slightly different use case. So. Yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do. And all I can encourage people to do is to think about it. I think it's a mindset thing. Now I look at something and say, right, I want to build this thing. How could I do it? And I, I start with, you should start with SaaS. If you buy something off the shelf that does it like 100%, but your next step I think should be serverless because the, the heavy lifting that you have to do uh, and the security benefits that we'll get to in a moment um, are unprecedented really, in my opinion. So um, yeah, that should be your kind of, decision process when you're thinking about building new stuff or transforming stuff in the cloud. Very cool. So do you, and this is just me asking out of the blue because you triggered some thoughts. Um, does any, do you find that people jump to serverless as an effort to modernize monolithic architectures that maybe are using a lot of stateless processing, like you mentioned, converting a JPEG to a smaller image or something like that? Because there's a lot of that in some of the older architectures that are sometimes Reiter like coded differently 12 different times and it's, it's is that something that you see happening yeah definitely i think it's a i think actually the that's almost like a good way to dip your toe into the water of servers right? right those parts of people's applications are obviously slightly detached like i say they're often asynchronous they're detached from like the the crown jewels of the application right um right. so it's something that you can actually do uh, independently, even in a monolithic application, uh, some of these things are are separated, right? They're using queues and workers, for example. They're the kind of things that you can kind of break out easily from an application. So they're a good starting step. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I was I was speaking with uh, an organization recently that was doing something similar, and I think they were going the route of well, isolating their the REST API as serverless, even though that was eventually going to be still feeding a monolithic backend that they were in the nightmare of re-architecting. Um, but which I don't know how dangerous that sounds. So that's a great next step into 
Now we talked about sort of roughly three different types of code, and, and I'll play this back to see if uh, I got this right. So we're talking about HTTP REST APIs was the first thing. We're talking about uh, asynchronous things like uh, database changes or maybe processing of, of, of media of some sort. And then there was the other one where it was more like business logic, right? It was like writing glue code to make other things happen. Um, was that a rough replay? And perhaps we can we tackle security in that order? Yeah, let's do it. Because HTTP REST API just leaps out at me, right? As a, <laughs> I think as a way to get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think we should definitely talk about them separately. Um, that, that's actually, yeah, I'd love to talk about them separately because I think that often they are uh, they are bundled together and there are very different security considerations for both or all, th or all three really. Okay, cool. So we're going we're gonna to start with API. So if I'm running an API and I, I've got all of my routing set up, what are the things I need to consider maybe from the start? So first of all, uh, there's been a fantastic effort done by OWASP on the serverless top 10. So people listening to this may be familiar with the OWASP top 10, which is the uh, the top 10 most common common pitfalls, uh, maybe you would put it, in uh, web applications. There's actually a serverless top 10. So uh, abiding to all of those is probably a good start. <laughs> um, the yeah. the interesting thing there is that actually the serverless top 10 are exactly the same top 10 as the OWASP top 10, uh, by title at least, not actually by uh, description. Uh, to, to be fair to the the team that put that together, there's, a, um, there's some fantastic advice there around non-HTTP triggered um, serverless environments, uh, which I think often gets a miss. But the one key thing to remember is that if you're building a HTTP API, AppSec is still AppSec, right? You still need to worry about application security. You still need to worry about vulnerable dependencies. You still need to worry about um, making sure that you're doing good input validation and, and things like that. Um, the one thing I must say before we kind of start this whole security conversation is that sometimes I worry that when I give these talks or talk to people like yourself about this, that People can think, come away from this thinking, wow, Dean showed me all these ways I could break into this serverless app. Serverless can't be <laughs> secure, right? Um, and, and I want to just emphasize that it's the opposite, right? There's This would be a lot easier or there would be a much uh, larger attack surface on a non-serverless app. Uh, and, the, and the interesting thing here for us in the UK is that the uh, NCSC, the National, I've got that right around, the National Cybersecurity Center, who advised the... Um, the UK government and businesses in the UK about applications and cybersecurity, they uh, actually have published some content advising people to use serverless. Um, and I saw a great talk at Serverless Days Cardiff from uh, the, the guy that did the research there, Jamie, um, talking about how serverless is, they deem serverless way more secure than um, other stuff. So I, I kind of want to caveat this conversation with that, that um, it's a good place to be. Um, but as with anything, right, there are always going to be bad actors and security um, vulnerabilities that we need to be aware of. And that's what keeps us in the job, right? Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you were talking about the, the OWASP top 10, and that's where I was hoping you would go, because when serverless started, I originally looked at the original top 10 and thought, does this still work? Is this order still correct? Um, and I think they issued, I don't know if it was a, a new top 10 or was it an, inter an interpretation for serverless or something like that? Um, which kind of recontextualize the top 10. Is that what you mean? Or is there yeah, an so, actual serverless top 10? No, there is a serverless top 10. Uh, and like I say, by title, they're the same top 10. So you're right when you thought about it. Yeah, these things do still do still apply. Um, 
I think number one is injection, right? And we'd probably think of that in web environments as SQL injection being the most common there. Most serverless applications probably aren't using SQL, so it's probably going to be more code injection or something like that. But um, injection, uh, which uh, which can be solved by input validation, etc., is the kind of one of the is still the number one, I believe, on the serverless top ten. The um, and yeah, and I think like sticking to that, AppSec is still AppSec. You still need to secure your application code. Um, you still need to think, but there's some things we can do to that are kind of specific to serverless as well, um, particularly around like your cloud configuration, right? Make sure that you're you're not allowing HTTP. You're only allowing HTTPS. Um, make sure that you understand the the architecture of your cloud provider and how they how they build serverless applications. So uh, the example here is that. Not all cloud providers are built equally. Um, and I don't mean not equally in terms of how good they are. I think actually all the cloud providers have got fantastic functions as a service offering if we focus on that part of the world. Um, but it's just as if like you, if you and I, Steve, were asked to both build uh, an application over the weekend, we'd probably make some different technical decisions, right? So they are built differently. And one of the things we need to be aware of is, is just knowing that boundary. So think about, uh, especially for for web stuff, right? It's when generally things are publicly exposed to the internet, right? So you're actually running code that people on the internet can actually trigger somehow via some kind of, yes, yeah, a HTTP event. Uh, but if there's any input going in, make sure it's validated. That's the key thing I must emphasize. But the, um, but yeah, the thing there about the, the web APIs on the internet is just making sure that you're understand the architecture of your system. So in Azure, for example, we have the concept of a function app and a function app can have one or more functions. Uh, so it could be quite a natural thing to say, well, I'm only going to create one function app and I'll put all my functions in there. But if you don't understand the underlying architecture of that and the fact that that function app is the component of scale, it's the security boundary, it's where we share keys, it's where we share our secrets and our environment variables, then you can easily fall into some easy to make mistakes without understanding that. And there are documentation to, it's an education piece, right? There's documentation to write this. Um, likewise, with, with other cloud providers, um, you've, you've got some interesting stuff around... Um, when you connect to to like virtual networks inside the cloud, right? Sometimes this is a well-requested feature that serverless functions can connect into your environment, right? Well, if you're allowing serverless functions to connect into your private environment, whether that's in some kind of virtual network, well, you wanna make sure you, you protect that. So the next thing that you need to worry about after understanding that kind of architecture and how these things bolt together is, the, is make sure you're uh, adhering to the concept of least privilege, right? And giving your, your functions as, as little privilege as possible. Uh, a bunch of attacks we've seen uh, recently in the cloud, and maybe they're serverless, maybe they're not, maybe they're via virtual machines, have been through um, server-side request forgery and people being able to access uh, springboard from cloud environments into places in their accounts where they, they shouldn't be allowed to go. So uh, least privilege, I think, is the second one. that If you're going to do three things, I think they'd be the, the three first things you could check. Like Make sure you're not allowing HTTP, uh, you're only allowing HTTPS. This sounds like a silly one. Yeah, of course, Dean... Uh, we would do that, but um, like by default, HTTP is on uh, in some of these offerings. Um, so yeah, so they're the kind of things I would think initially from a serverless specific perspective for web APIs to think about. Okay, all right, excellent. So to, to try and draw an analysis, analogy from the function app, uh, you called it, is that, am I way off and if I were to say that's, for those who are familiar with containers but not necessarily serverless, would that be the pod to my container potentially um, if I was trying to find an analogy? Yeah, it's not a bad analogy. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Um, th there are benefits to this design pattern as well, right? We can we can really easily communicate between 
function code. We can share dependencies uh, if we need to. We can um, we can do stuff like um, people watching this might might not be aware of this, but functions suffer from something called cold starts, which is where the first request to your function takes a little while to get started. Mm -hmm. um, because we're spinning up the underlying infrastructure for you kind of almost on the fly. So the first invocation of your function uh, is almost always uh, takes a few milliseconds longer. Um, well, that also happens at the function app level. So if you've got multiple functions in a function app, one that's really busy and others that aren't, the ones that aren't won't really suffer from cold starts because the, the function app is already warm as such, if that makes sense. So, yeah, it does. So there, so there are some benefits to this pattern as well, but um, there's also some just considerations that people need to know about from a security perspective. Okay, excellent. So when I'm applying permissions to what my function is allowed to do, is that is that part of the function app or the function itself? So all, so yeah, so I guess it depends by provider. If we talk about Azure, it's pretty similar actually uh, across providers, but ultimately you, you can assign an identity to your your function your function app, sorry, and in Azure, sorry, to answer your exact question, in Azure, that's at the function app level. The identity is assigned at the function app level. So all of those functions will have the same level of access. Okay, all right. That's that's the kind of information I was just trying to get because when you're talking about least privilege, you can get, let's say, this certainly happens in, well, the entire world. That's, I was going to be specific about container security there. But laziness tends to drive a um, ignorance of least privilege. So to ensure that I haven't overly privileged uh, or, or permissioned something uh, is actually pretty critical, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, laziness drives this stuff. Also, I think uh, all of us are probably guilty of doing this, right? I've, I know I've put my hands up and admit that in the past I've potentially done this where I, I maybe wrote like a blog post or something and said, oh, like, here's an example uh, policy, right? And like for me on my blog post, it doesn't really matter. But if someone was to take that and then use that in a production environment, that would be pretty bad. So um, I think um, just understanding, like never copy and paste stuff you find on the internet or what. Um, but not only that, just um, just being aware of it and saying, actually, like this seems wrong. If there's a star anywhere in a policy, generally that's something you should probably look at. Okay, like that. <laughs> never copy and paste something you see on the internet. You know, all work productivity is just draw, just yeah. ground to a halt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> be careful when you copy and paste from the internet yeah that's probably better advice yeah. <laughs> awesome okay well that, that was a, a quick start into the the api it does, do things change much when we move from uh serverless apis to running stateless processing i think what changes for me is our ability to and this is i think really an untouched problem to be honest uh, and it's something that i'm trying to do some research into at the moment and i'm with build and stuff i haven't found the time to put as much time into it as i'd like but i think one thing that we kind of oversee here is the not so much that things change much those things all still matter very much um we're normally triggering it from another service in our cloud environment so assuming that that is secure is something that people sometimes take for granted um again like the example is that if you trigger a function from something in storage right well you think oh, well it's only been triggered from my storage i don't have to worry too much about the security of this function right because it's my storage account that's triggering it but then you wait until somebody uploads a file and the file name has got some code um injection in it or something right the file name has got like semicolon like whatever um env or something to read out the environment variables or something yeah. crazy like that and then um all of a sudden 
you've got somebody uploading a file to your site, which you think is thing, but you're not doing good input validation on your function. And then that's able to, I don't know, read something. I've seen this quite common when people do image processing because they normally use, or often people have used things like image magic um, and breaking out to the underlying uh, function host using like os.system. You can do this on all serverless ops services, by the way. You can just call, uh, I'm talking about Python, I think it's os.system uh, in node, it's process.env, right? You can just run a CLI command on the underlying instance. Um, so if you do that, and some people have legitimate reasons to do that, the um, and you're not doing input validation, especially for those kind of use cases, you can get caught out a little bit because you're not trust, you're kind of trusting that source. But the more interesting thing there actually to me is that the way that we can test for these vulnerabilities in those scenarios, right? You think about a web API and a web app and you'll obviously people say, well, you should use Z attack proxy or burp scanner, or you should use some kind of like Nikto or some kind of web vulnerability or API vulnerability scanner uh, as a, as a minimum to check your, to check your environment. You can't do that for a function that isn't triggered by HTTP, right? These tools aren't built for that. You can't use the same, security tools to perform vulnerability and security assessments of your environment for non-HTTP triggered functions. And I think that's actually a kind of like an unsolved problem at the moment, which is uh, one of the reasons I'm trying to look into it around like, how can we build tooling or capability for people to be able to test these functions that aren't triggered by HTTP, right? Because at the minute, I maybe I'm wrong, someone listening to this might tell me, but I don't see those tools out there um, in the community right now. Yeah. Okay. I think there's a, there's a, there's an, for all of you looking for a startup idea. Yeah. Yeah. If you have more time than me, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll be your non, -ex, I'll be your non exec. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, that's, that's, that's interesting because I think as, as a kind of a constant within security, as people are moving into cloud native, the, the, the repeating message seems to be that the old security tools may not work in your modern environment or your modern architecture. And uh, that, you know, this feels like another example of where we put a lot of effort into designing tools to for penetration testing or security testing generally. And you've highlighted a really interesting situation where how do you test? And perhaps, yeah, that is, if anybody's listening and you have an answer to that, yeah, please, let me know. <laughs> yeah, please let us know. I mean, we'll put, uh, We'll put Dean's contact details in the show notes so you can let him know. So does that so the, does that essentially still apply? Because we were originally kind of going towards um, stateless or just like your generic database access and things that are somewhere in the middle. But when we're talking about the glue code now, that would be the third tier that is sort of orchestrating different pieces of your serverless or in in some cases potentially non-serverless architecture. Is it are we talking the same thing or does the attack surface change again? The same things matter in terms of protection, least privilege. Um, often, if you think these are like the the sysadmins of today, right, writing a lot of these kind of these kind of functions. Uh, so everyone wants God mode, right? So they might potentially yeah. like least privilege is a, a major thing there. Um, but I think definitely from an attack surface, these are generally uh, often they're timer based triggers. They're not generally triggered via user interaction. Uh, so that arguably they could be seen as a tiny bit more secure from an attack surface perspective. But I think, um, yeah, the same stuff kind of applies, but generally these aren't, these aren't the kind of things that are triggered by, by customers or external, um, people, which generally means that, um, they're kind of, they're a bit more, a bit more, um, secure by default, but yeah, the same, the same rules all apply as always. 
Yeah, well, there's always that sort of security analogy of the the egg or the uh, the hard outer and the soft inner. Is it is it possible to take advantage of something that you that you can exploit in the HT? Pardon me, the API domain, but then tap into something that is part of the the glue code that has access to more than the HTTP um, serverless function might have. Yeah, and it's, and I mean, like it goes without saying, I guess, but all of this stuff needs to be secure for this to work, especially if stuff's running in the same account, right, or the same subscription. Because if you don't do least privilege on your web APIs, and somebody exploits one, right, and they've got wide star level access to your your cloud provider account, then um, they can do whatever they want, right? At that point, they can they can invoke these functions, they can they can do whatever. So I think that is, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. There's always the ability and. I love that analogy. Someone, I saw someone explain it once where they said, like, if you built a castle today, you wouldn't use a moat to protect it, right? Um, you'd probably use some more advanced security. You'd probably have defense on the inside and all this kind of stuff, right? So um, CC, internal CCTV and all this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's uh, goes without saying that you should make treat these things as if they are public, even though they're potentially not. Yeah, it's funny. We say the word firewall so often that we forget that it's a firewall like it's it's a real word from from a long time ago yeah okay awesome uh we're sort of running to the end of the uh my, my allocated time with you we should maybe even we could even schedule a part two because you've already tapped into a few extra things but is there any sort of messaging that you'd like to sort of throw out there that i didn't tap into in terms of serverless security or serverless or, or anything i'll give you the some free reign <laughs> No, the only thing I would say is that the one thing we haven't really spoke about in serverless is is logging, right? And I oh, think yeah. in these kind of stateless uh, environments, uh, they only live for a very short period of time, right? And they may never live again. So logging is really crucial to being able to understand what's happening in our environments uh, and see what, what has happened and what's going on and behavioral characteristics. So yeah, I think that's another thing that just as a top of the head uh, mentioned to people, make sure that you're logging both your application uh, events, but also things like your audit activity within your cloud provider, which all of the cloud providers offer in some shape or form. Yeah, and probably worth also noting that, what is it, OWASP number 10, uh, excessive logging that might reveal. Yeah, and yeah, don't, yeah, don't return a stack, stack trace or something to your, to your, uh, <laughs> to your end users. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Excellent. All right. That was, that was great. Dean, thank you very much for being on the show uh it, it probably seems like it flies by pretty fast but it's already been more than half an hour <laughs> well yeah thanks for having me yeah no worries and that is another episode of beer sec ops beer sec ops is powered by aqua security and assisted immensely by shirley fried and edited by taylor sattler thanks for listening and i'll see you next time